I don't know. It might be started, but oh, there it goes. Thursday. Okay. It seems to take longer to get going. As opposed to Wednesday night Bible study. Yes, the Wednesday night, sure. Yeah, yeah, okay. 81. Cough. Bend, open, allow, tame, open palm. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? Though I am like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your decree. How long must your servant wait? When will, your, when will you punish my persecutors? The arrogant dig pitfalls for me, contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me, for men persecute me without cause. They also they almost wipe me from the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the statutes of your mouth. Good stuff. Okay, we got. Uh, Sound like Job was writing that. Joe, it does. <laughs> Sounds like Job was writing that. Got quite a few prayer requests here. Let's see. We got Dean and Doris are expecting their first grandchild, but there are some complications. So it's expected on the 18th of November, and they've asked for prayers. And then Akemi over in Japan has a grandchild coming as well. And she's asking for prayers for health and that it may be blessed by God and to live God's way all the days of his or her life. And Darla has not been to church for like months and her teeth are just very bad. She's got infections. This has been going on now for months. And so uh, we want to keep her in prayer because she's really been struggling. Uh, Jonas needs freedom from alcohol. Somebody emailed me about that and just asked that we would pray about that. Freda, who hasn't been here for quite a while on Thursday night, is also really struggling. We want to add her into prayer. Mark is getting over a virus. Becky is still struggling with both her continued illness and her emotions because of all the problems they've been having. They're out in Colorado, and uh, so they ask for prayer. And then Steph has a fractured heel, and she's in real great pain. That's Lisa over in Australia. Her daughter is having all kinds of trouble. And then I got uh, Jim handed this to me. Uh, uh, Jonas. Oh, yes. Okay, this is the one that I just read. Absolutely. So there you go, Jonas. Um, I did get her email. And uh, wow. Anyway, um, you handed it to me, and I wasn't really uh, putting two and two together until I started reading that. And then we have... Pat lost a good friend this morning, and so we want to keep Pat in prayer as well. This has uh, just been a, a tough week for a lot of people, and uh, I haven't heard from Graham, so I assume he's okay, but we'll add him into our prayers anyway because we know that he just has been struggling over there quite a bit. So we'll, we'll just add him in just for the sake of knowing that uh, we care about him. Anyway, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to meet here in this uh, building and to uh, gather for the looking into your word we would pray that that would be done properly and that you would be glorified and exalted through it but lord you know that there's a lot of people with all kinds of difficulties in their life and they're uh all different uh things that are hemming people in whether it's uh addictions or whether it's uh you know trepidation about coming grandchildren that might have problems or whatever it is lord you know these things and so we would ask that you would just search each one of us out, look into our lives, and if there's something that is on our hearts, you would be there with us through it and alleviate it if it's your will. We certainly pray this because you can do all things, uh, and we just ask that it would be in accord with your will that these things would come about. We certainly thank you for the chance once again to meet here and to uh, get into your word. We hope that it 
brings much glory to you and that people will be edified and built up through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We got uh, Sean just walked in. He's emailed a couple times this week and uh, he's looking for a church. So uh, I told him we meet on Thursday night and on Sunday. So here he is. Good to have you here, Sean. And let's see here. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34 right now. So okay, no other reading? Uh, no, I get enough prayer requests where we put us a little behind. Sure. So I'll back up to 29. 29 it is. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptizing for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I, day, I die every day. I mean that, brother, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reason, why, what have I gained? And if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 34. Come back to your senses as you ought. Stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Okay, a little different with the New King James. It says, awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Okay, so we got, uh, before we actually uh, start into the verse, we got Dr. and Mabel back. Yay. Good to have you here. And uh, I didn't know they were here, so I sent them, a, I always send a, a copy of the sermon to them, and then I hope it gets there on time for Sundays. But anyway, that went out this morning, and then they walk in here, so you, USPS made 50 cents off of us, or whatever a stamp is now, I have no idea. And uh, then I was thinking, to, you what? up to 55 oh my gosh 55 cents i remember when they were like 10 cents or something like that yeah three cents he's got three. i got a couple people saying three here so um today is halloween and so i thought if anybody comes by here and goes trick-or-treating we'll say come on in here and we got a trick for you and we're gonna lock the door and give them the bible how's that okay reformation yeah reformation day uh, we'll get them reformed what's that well, it's a treat, yes, but we got to trick them first. So, okay, 1534, let's see here. What do my notes say on that? Uh, Paul now sums up the entire passage of 1 Corinthians 15 thus far. After this, he will head into a slightly different direction while still speaking of the resurrection. But here, after concluding his defense of the resurrection, he provides a stinging rebuke intended to keep the Corinthians and thus us, because this is an epistle in God's word. It applies to us now from heading down the path of doubt or heresy again. In doing so, he begins with awake. The Greek word is eknepho. It is used only this once in the New Testament, and it can be rightly translated as sober up. It indicates awakening as if from a drunken stupor. When someone is tired, they may be naive about a matter, but still be able to think clearly. However, when in a drunken stupor, right thinking is impossible. He had given all of the evidences and defenses necessary concerning the resurrection. This is the point of this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to speak about it right till the end. Now they need to soberly process what he has said. He continues on with to righteousness. This is an adverb, and so the thought is more appropriately appropriately rendered sober up righteously he's asking them to come to a sound state of doctrine and to live by it in order to do so he further implores them by saying and do not sin 
you know, I told you a week or so ago, I had somebody email me and say, well, if salvation is eternal, then we can do whatever we want and we'll still go to heaven. And I said, that may be the case, but that doesn't jibe with what the Bible says. We're not only saved for eternity, we are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee, and if it's not forever, then it wasn't a very good guarantee. It's also not reflective of the God of the Bible. But secondly, it uh, is completely contrary to our salvation to want to continue to live in sin. We're to be saved out of that life. But whatever, people can believe whatever they want on that particular issue, but uh, he's uh, asking them to have this sound state of doctrine and to live by it. And to not sin. The implication here is, which should be taken as an axiom, is that bad doctrine is sin. You've got to think that one through there. If your doctrine is not proper, if it is unsound, it is sin, especially if you're teaching it to somebody else. When one is presented with proper doctrine and they either reject it or are unwilling to take the time to understand it, they err. Nobody will be able to say, I just didn't have time to learn the truth. Man finds time for every unnecessary thing on this planet, but fails to make time for knowing, fellowshipping with, and being obedient to his creator. And this is sin. Anybody that says, oh, I don't have time. I just don't have time. You know they do. They've got a job that they work the same as anybody else. And then they go home and they probably watch four, five, six hours of TV a day, some people. They go to sports games, they do this, they do that. Nothing wrong with enjoying yourself in life. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. But if you have time to do those things and you don't have time to read your Bible 30 minutes in the morning and a few minutes at night before you go to bed and to go to a Bible study or attend one online, you've got a problem there. That's a real problem. And you're the one that will be accountable for your doctrine when you stand before the Lord. Now, obviously, you're learning from somebody, whoever you're learning from, they are the ones that are responsible for teaching you your doctrine, but you are still responsible for taking it in. And if you haven't read the Bible, you have no idea what somebody is teaching, whether it's true or not. You can only assume that what they're teaching is correct. But there are great teachers all over this country. You'll hear them on Moody Radio if you're driving down the road. And two of the finest teachers you've ever heard will say completely the opposite thing on a point of doctrine. Now, there's only a couple possibilities there. One is right and one is wrong, or they're both wrong, but they both cannot be right. And this happens all the time. It happens in Christian counseling. Somebody will say you need to do this, and the other one will say you don't, shouldn't do that at all. Yes? Um, something you said back there kind of reminded me of the uh, person that asked for some prayers for sobriety. You go right back up to 33. It's a pretty clear picture that uh, stay filled full of the Spirit. It'll help you. Absolutely. Keep filled with the Spirit. 100%. He's absolutely right about that. You know, and the way that you were filled with the Spirit, we've said this 10 million times, in the Greek, when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, it is passive in the Greek. It's not an active verb. It's a passive verb. Every time he writes it, it's passive. So that means that you have to do something, and then it will happen to you. If you think of the sprinkling of the red heifer, the people walked up to be sprinkled, but they didn't do the sprinkling on themselves. They passively stood there while somebody else sprinkled them. And when you are being filled with the Spirit, you're either praying or you're fellowshipping with other Christians, or you're reading the Bible. You're doing something that allows the Spirit to fill you. You are never actively filled with the Spirit. You don't do something, and He actively fills you. It is you do something, and He passively fills you. That is the sealing and, or the filling of the Spirit. We need to remember that's an important point, is that you have to be doing something in obedience to the Lord or in fellowship with others in order to be filled with the Spirit. So 
I guess, in other words, I was trying to say that um, we're a flame, right. and this is the fuel. Absolutely. So even though the flame can never be put out, but this is the fuel. And uh, what we were talking about earlier, how you said that if someone wants to live that way and send us all down, well, you might not be able to lose salvation, but you can definitely lose you can lose you will lose rewards and you will lose your joy one thing you want to know is that they can't hear you when you're speaking so speak up really loud okay because uh, it's it's yeah the uh um so to confirm that do not sin is tied to proper doctrine he next says for some do not have the knowledge of god in particular he is speaking about those in verse 12. There, he said that some, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. As the resurrection is one of the principal doctrines of the faith, to believe such rubbish or to teach it is sin. People come along all the time making unfounded statements about Christianity, either purposefully or out of incompetence. And to listen to such people can only lead down heresy highway and then onto apostasy avenue. And to be caught up in their lies shows a true dullness of the mind. In order for them to realize this, he says, I speak this to your shame. He's being very firm here. He's not just mincing words and he's not being, he's speaking directly to these people. He is speaking to the entire church at Corinth, but also to each individual. And because his words are recorded in the Bible, he is speaking to all churches and all individuals throughout the church age. This dispensation of grace we have responsibilities, and Paul is not holding back on it. He's telling us directly. We're all individually responsible for our doctrine. It is true that teachers are more so, which is recorded in James 3, verse 1. Brothers, not many of you should purpose to be teachers, knowing that uh, you will receive, teachers will receive the strict, stricter judgment. But everyone should at least know the basics of the faith. When a cult comes knocking at the door, there should be enough knowledge of Scripture to tell them to beat it and to stop teaching falsities. And you don't want to get into debate with these people, and you don't want to greet them, because it says, he who greets them shares in his wicked work. Unless you're trained in doctrine, you shouldn't even be talking to people that come knocking on your door that are bringing heresy with you, because you will find yourself believing them when they're teaching something which is completely false. But once again, you would never know that unless you've read your Bible and you've studied it and you're at least aware of the basic tenets that are in Scripture. Hello, Miss Garrett. How are you tonight? Life application. What is most? What is of most value to you in this life? Everything we possess and everything we do is temporary and it will eventually disappear into obscurity, except our relationship with the Lord. And the only way to properly understand this relationship is through knowing Scripture. If you are reading it and studying it constantly, you are showing great disrespect to the Lord who gave it to you. I mean, it took 1,600 years of human history to get this word compiled for us and to get it put into an order and into a, uh, a structure that we can read it, we can understand the dispensations of time, we can understand what his intent was before the law, why he gave us the law, why he gave all the records of the people that failed and succeeded and excelled in the times of the law, why Christ came at the certain time he came, and why are we in this dispensation right now? All of these things we should have at least a little bit of an idea over because we've read the Bible and we have at least a knowledge of where those things are and how the structure is. And then the rest of our life, we should be trying to figure out and understanding why God gave us this in the way he has given it to us. So there you go. Okay, 35. But some may ask, how were the dead raised? 
And what kind of body will they come? Oh, see, this is uh, one of the most common questions that you'll get with people. And I mean, anybody, I, I, anybody that doesn't have this question is probably not a really curious soul. What kind of body are we going to have? How are the dead raised? I mean, Paul's going to go into detail on it. Thus far, Paul has spoken about <clears throat> the fact that the resurrection of the dead is what's been occurring. It has occurred in Christ, and so there is a precedent for it. If there is a precedent, then logically it follows that the resurrection is a natural outcome of being in Christ for the believer. Christ came out of the grave. You're in Christ. You're not being imputed sin. The law is dead to you, and you're dead to the law, and therefore you must come out of the grave. That's as logical as it could be. Peter said in Acts 2 that uh, it was impossible for death to hold him. It's because he was without sin. When you are in Christ, you are without sin. You are covered by Christ's righteousness, and God is not counting men's sins against them. 2 Corinthians 5.19. So you've got that precedent, and now that he has fully established this truth, which he's been talking about for the past many verses, he poses questions which had certainly been asked of him. From this, he will provide answers sufficient for our present state and our future hope. As the fact of the resurrection is established, the introduction of the questions moves to the manner and form of it. Concerning manner, the question is, how are the dead raised up? There are almost an infinite number of things that could go through the mind concerning this. How could the dead be reanimated? I mean, how is that possible? What about someone who got eaten by sharks, alligators, or worms? I mean, really, people ask these things. You know, some people say that if you are cremated, you can't be saved. Church of Christ doctrine there. Okay? Is it recorded anywhere in Scripture? Absolutely not. And some people are incinerated. People were incinerated when the bomb went off in Hiroshima, right? Oh, yeah, you get in a fire. Okay? People have these questions. What is it that happens to a body when certain things happen to it? How could a dead person dissolved in a nuclear blast be regathered together and come alive again? What about those who died 2,000 years ago? How can a person be restructured after such a long time? Questions like this address manner in the process of the resurrection. Next, concerning form, the question might be, with what body do they come? Will the resurrected feel pain like we feel now? Will we be able to fly? Will we be able to see 3D? Will we need food to eat? Will we need to sleep so that we can rest? Do we need to exercise to stay fit? What about a child that dies? Will he resurrect as a child? Will an old person remain old? Will we know one another? Will we have the same affections, likes, and dislikes that we have right now? On and on, we could posit questions concerning the form of the resurrection. This is especially the case because Paul uses the term come rather than return. If the manner questions are logically considered and answered, for example, cannibals, cannibals who once ate Christian missionaries and later came to Christ themselves, the form questions necessitate coming rather than returning. In this, we can know that the body of the resurrection is the same in individuality, but not necessarily in makeup. Paul will give explanations of this as he continues. Life application, God has it all figured out. If he promises a resurrection for those who are in Christ, it will come about just as he promised, and it will be glorious. I like to go back and from time to time remind you of the naming of Cain and Abel. When Eve named her son Cain, it was because she was excited. She thought that this was the Redeemer. 
I have acquired Canaan, a man with the Lord. She thought he was the redeemer. He was going to get her back into paradise. That's You could see the excitement in it. She's done something. She's earned her way back into heaven. She's participated in her salvation. I have acquired a man with the Lord. And then came Abel. And what does she name him? Havel. Breath. Breath that you can see on a cold day that just disappears. And she realized he wasn't the redeemer. And I'm stuck having more children. And this is going to go on for I don't know how long in this body that has pain, that has sorrow, that has misery and woe. And to this day, we're still in those bodies and we're still inheriting the same sin all the way down through time. But we can see when, uh, what's his name? Solomon said, uh, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. He was using the same word that she gave to her son, Hevel Hevelim, vanity of vanities. It's just breath going out. Everything is vanity. And we can see that. This is what's going on in human history. And People have questions. What's it going to be like when we are resurrected? How is it going to be? What's my form and manner going to be like? That's what Paul wants to tell us. But we have to think about where we are and where we came from in order to understand the glory of what lies ahead. Because what she left was glorious. What Adam left was glorious. And that was probably all they could think about for the rest of their lives is what they had and what they no longer had and how long it would be until they got it back. He believed. He believed that it would happen. The Lord gave them the covering. The picture of being covered in Christ. But they still waited until the day they died, 930 years later for Adam. But it's coming. And when they go rise again someday with us, we're going to say how marvelous this is. And Adam and Eve are going to say how marvelous it was. We're so glad to be back here. Just think of it. Anyway, there you go, 1536. When you sow, I'm sorry, I'm going ahead. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. There you go. Paul's words here are in response to the questions posited in the previous verse concerning the how and the what of the resurrection. His answer is directed to those who would submit such questions in an attempt to trip up another, not specifically to someone who is merely curious about the matter. In other words, a person who asks those questions in a dismissive manner, attempting to show the illogical nature of a literal resurrection, is who Paul is responding to. That would be the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Christ rose a mighty spirit being. That's what they say. He didn't raise physical. When it's as, as clear in the text as it could be, look at my hands, look at my feet. A spirit doesn't have bone and flesh as you see I do. And he ate with them and he did all these things with them. He, ra he ascended literally and bodily. Hello, Miss Garrett, how are you? And so uh, uh, anyway, forgot what I was saying when my mom walked in, but... Um, anyway, his answer begins with a mild rebuke. He says, foolish one. It is equivalent to saying, oh, unreasonable. And the choice of words is supported by his continued comment. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. It sounds like what Jesus said when the Greeks came up and asked him a question. Remember that? And he's, okay, there you go. The word you is emphatic. What this means is that anyone who has ever planted a seed or even anyone who hasn't but still understands what occurs when a seed is planted should be able to understand that it is a comparable analogy to the resurrection itself. It is seen daily and it is understood clearly. As pretty much everyone knows what happens to a seed in this situation, then the you, this emphatic you, is to be understood as all people, including the deniers of the resurrection. A seed remains a seed until it is used for some other purpose. 
If it's eaten, it's no longer a seed, but it becomes a source of nutrition for the one who ate it. But if the seed is stored, even for thousands of years, it remains a seed. Remember the Methuselah palm over in Israel? They found those date palm seeds that were over 2,000 years old. And what did they do? They planted them. Some of them germinated. Now we have Judean date palms growing in the Judean desert. And then just within the past couple of weeks, what was it, a month ago now? They found out that they have males to go with the female that germinated first. And so very soon we are going to have real Judean date palms for the first time since the Lord walked on the earth. That's pretty amazing, but that's what a seed is. The seed remains a seed until something happens to it. Seeds have been found in Israel. Here it is, China and elsewhere that go back eons. When planted, they do what seeds are intended to do. First, they break down. Paul notes that it dies, and then they come back up in a completely different state. The body of the seed as a whole dies. It decays in order to become a source for food for the germ. If you've ever seen a mango, come over to my house after the mango season, and we got mangoes all over the place that the squirrels have gone and buried a little bit. And what happens? The mango itself becomes a part of providing nutrition for the seed on the inside. And it lives off of that mango as the seed starts growing. And it grows down and it's using all of the fruit around it as its nutrition until it comes out as a tree. And so we have little mango trees every year popping up all over the place, okay? The body of the seed as a whole dies. It decays in order to become a source of food for the germ. And this new life occurs. Paul is using this analogy, not because it is an exact representation of what occurs in a believer, but because it demonstrates that even in nature, there's a comparable occurrence to what is taught concerning the resurrection. Jesus uses the same terminology, as I said, in John chapter 12, where he says, John chapter 12 and verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Life application here, we can transfer all of the data on an old vinyl disc to a magnetic tape to a CD, or even to a computer's hard drive. The same music is retained even though it's in a different format. If we can do this with Tinker Toys, how much more can God ensure that all of what comprises us will be retained and restored as well? Have no fear that God has it all under control. They've just, what was it, uh, about a month ago, maybe it was less, three weeks, Google got its quantum computer to do something. It did something that would have taken 10,000 years with the greatest supercomputers on this planet, and it did it in 100 seconds. 10,000 years with the largest supercomputer on this planet in 100 seconds. And that is a tinker toy. We think we're seeing the mind of God with stuff like that. We're not. We're seeing tinker toy stuff. If we can develop that, it is so far below God that it means absolutely nothing. Every bit of information of who you are is stored by God. Every bit of it. And as he noted a minute ago, it's all going to be presented before the Lord if you're in Christ. And it's either going to be you're given rewards for it or you're going to have loss because of it. But everything that we are will be presented to him. What, what have we done with our lives to bring him glory? It's our choice. We've got the choice now. Live for God. Verse 37. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be just the seed, perhaps a wheat or something else. Paul continues with his remarks concerning the resurrection body, using the analogy of grains in order to show the marvelous nature of what's going to occur. 
In this, he begins with, and what you sow. Earlier in chapter 3, he noted the process of planting and watering in regards to the gospel message. He now returns to that analogy once again with the sowing of grain. Even though he was a Pharisee, a tent maker, and an apostle, he had a sound knowledge of the process. In planting a garden or a crop, you will choose a certain type of seed to sow in hopes of a future harvest. But when you plant seed, you aren't sowing that body that shall be. Instead, all you're doing is putting seeds in the ground, mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, as Paul says. One can discern between different types of grain, but it doesn't mean that the grain itself will look like what the seed produces. What goes into the ground may be small, brownish, hard, and somewhat round, but from it will come something soft, green, tall, and which produces leaves, flowers, and new grains. A completely different body comes out of the ground than what went into the ground. And yet the original identity of the seed is completely preserved. This goes all the way back to the very first page of the Bible. In the first chapter, it says this. People ask, did the chicken or the egg come first? Well, the answer is found right here with what he says in uh, Genesis 1, verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit that yields uh, the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. He made the tree, he made the fruit on the tree, the tree had the seed in it. Everything was ready. When he prepared it, everything was ready. I'm sorry, the Bible does not give us an out for evolution. If you want to believe in evolution, that's your choice. But the Bible does not give that as an out. It doesn't even give us an out for long-term creation. The Bible says that God created in six days, and we can know that those are six literal days from several different ways that we've talked about in the past. There's six literal days. All right? Believe whatever you want with that particular issue. I was raised here in Sarasota, and I went to uh, Philippi Shores Elementary School, and then I went to Philippi Shores, I'm sorry, uh, Brookside junior high school and I went to Riverview High School and they taught evolution and that's what I believed. I believed that for years and years and years and I came to the Bible and said well this is just kind of a myth and a whatever and it didn't take long for me to realize that this book is not a myth and that what it proclaims is the word of God and what it proclaims is true. So there you go. Anyway he created the chicken with the egg inside. The egg didn't come first and the chicken didn't come first and the tree came with the fruit and the seed in it. God ordained that things would produce after their own kind. Despite the seeds being completely different in appearance, the identity is not lost in dissolution. It is retained, and yet it bears a marvelous new look. Such will be the case at the resurrection. I planted, uh, let's see, in the past couple weeks, I planted some uh, different types of grasses, and we've had some more coconuts fall, and I got some coconuts coming up. And I planted some jackfruit a few months ago, and I've got jackfruit, little jackfruit trees popping up all over. We, uh, gee, it was only just a couple months ago I planted a um, uh, yeah, little black seed in these things, um, papaya, thousand little black seeds in there. I planted them in the ground. I've got one that's over 10 feet tall now, and it's got papayas this big, and it's only a couple months old. You know, they'll get really big eventually, but yeah. When did I plant that? Four months ago? Yeah, probably four months ago, and the thing's giant. It's whopping. It's as happy as it can be, but it doesn't look anything like that little black seed that I put in the ground. Doesn't look anything like it. 
Okay, there you go. So this is what the Bible is teaching us, that something goes into the ground in one form and it comes out another. It's a jackfruit. A jackfruit tastes, it, the only way I can explain it is it tastes like bubble gum. It's really, really good. It, jackfruit, when I lived in Malaysia, they, uh, they would have fruit that were so big the tree couldn't hold it. So what it would do instead of coming out on the branches, which it would have them on the branches as well, but it would have ones that were so big, it knew it was going to produce a big one. It would come out at the base of the tree, right out of the base of the tree itself. And it would lay there on the ground like a big uh, walrus or something. And it would get bigger and bigger and bigger and big. What's that? Pumpkins. Yeah, well, no, they're, 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 they're not pumpkins. These are much better. Yeah, yeah, but that's, that's a vine that grows. This isn't actually a tree where it just pops out of the side of the tree and just lays there like a big pimple. And so it gets bigger and bigger. And when you cut it open, it's got these little things in there. They're like, it looks like little... I don't know. They're about this big. Yeah. And yeah, you just pull them out and it tastes like if you want to taste jackfruit and it's really good and you'll like it. Don't get me wrong, but it's not as good as fresh. It's just go over to Publix and you can buy it in the international food section. You know, they have the, the Mexican stuff. and It'll say jackfruit and it'll be in a can and you'll get the taste of it. It just won't be as good as fresh, but I'm telling you, you will like it. I don't know anybody that doesn't like jackfruit. Durian, I understand. People... <laughs> Yes, I brought some in. We Last year, it was that jackfruit that I planted last year. I took the seed and I planted it and it popped out and I've got five or six or eight trees and I planted a couple at the mall and I planted one at the house and there you go. But, but the tree doesn't look like the seed. It, this tree does not look like the seed at all. But I tell you what, I, I thought I killed it. It was getting really healthy and happy and I put some miracle Grow on it thinking I was going to make and it didn't like that. It lost a lot of leaves and I thought I've killed my jackfruit, but it's got new leaves coming out so I, I won't fertilize it anymore I just I just wanted that thing to I, I can't wait I'm, I'm salivating thinking about because it it's really good anyway just think of bubble gum and that's probably as close as you're gonna get um, uh, life application though we may be planted neath the clods of dirt today we shall rise again in a glorious way okay 1538 but God gave us Gave, gives it a body and as he has determined and to each kind of seed he gives its own body okay that's almost the same as this all right as noted in the preceding verse god originally created the trees and the plants and each contains seed according to its nature this was seen in genesis 1 11 and 12 which i read you a second ago likewise the other life which was described in the original creation account was according to its own kind this included the sea creatures, the creeping things, the beasts of the earth, and even man. Each thing re reproduces after its own kind. That is why we do not have dats, okay? We don't have dogs mating with cats and coming out with something different, all right? We have dogs and we have cats, okay? This precept dismisses both the long-term creation and any sort of evolution. The trees were created, they did not evolve, and they were created as fully functioning and capable of re reproducing because of the seed that they bore. The same is true with each form of animal life. Paul's words bear this out. These things didn't evolve into what they are. Rather, he says, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Now, where am I here? That was upside down. Yeah, 1538. Okay. And not only is this true at the original creation, but it is true with the resurrection. The form of the resurrection body is according to the pleasure of God. The same life that went into the ground as a seed will spring forth anew with the body that God chooses for it. 
Likewise, the same life of the person that was planted in the ground at burial will spring forth anew with the resurrection body that God has prepared for it. So life application. One, we will not, we will not evolve into a resurrection body. Instead, God has prepared one for us, and this is what we will wear in our eternal walk in his presence. Two, whatever this body will be like, it will be wonderful. So prepare to be amazed. 39. Um, before I do. Yes. Um, evolution. Evolution. I noticed that, uh, that there's a lot of hoopla about the value of peace. The value of what? Peace. Yes. And if bees were to have a pitfall and go away, life on earth would be over. It would be in a real bad, bad situation. Right. So the bee is imperative. He's like an, it's like an enzyme for all the life that's on earth. It creates the... Um, yes. Right. Okay. How does something that important evolve into that position? Exactly. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one that is just perfect example of that is you have the exploder beetles. You ever heard of the exploder beetles? Okay. They're a little beetle that protects itself by forming an explosion. It has oh, yeah. two chambers in its body. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it has in this these two chambers different gases. Okay. And these gases unite when it wants to scare something away it goes out of this orifice and it unites and when it hits the oxygen it causes an explosion which scares away the things around it if this happened in any any other way than the way that it is designed the exploder beetle would explode it wouldn't live it wouldn't survive and you'd get one chance at it so evolution could never overcome the practice of the exploder beetle. It could never overcome it because the next one wouldn't know the reference point that that one had exploded itself with. Okay, so the exploder beetle, there's all kinds of things. You know, you get the, uh, the uh, woodpeckers. They have these uh, tongues that come out. Well, actually, the tongue is so long that it wraps around its head and goes all the way down here. You know, these things are designed. These things didn't happen by chance and it couldn't have developed over a trillion, zillion, gazillion years. It's just not possible. But the what? The giraffe. It's got chambers to keep it alive because its neck is so long that it's got these chambers in it to keep the, uh, the, the blood and the oxygen, everything properly balanced. I saw something very sad about giraffes yesterday on the news. I'm not going to tell you, but I want you to know that sad things happen in this world. I can't wait to leave this world. Anyway. Um, 1539. Um, 39, okay. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another. Birds, another, and fish, another. Okay, I got an email today. My friend has been reading in advance, you know, to see what he could, you know, he wanted to know in advance what we're going to be studying today. Okay, and he said that somebody sent an email, or no, he read a commentary. He sent me the email. He read a commentary that... One scholar says that there are only, uh, let me see, same flesh. There's uh, flesh of men, flesh of animals, flesh of fish, and flesh of birds. He says there's only four types of flesh. That is it. Okay. That's not a very good handling of scripture because each one of those categories is in the plural. Okay. Fish, even though we say fish, it can be singular or plural. They're all in the plural in the Greek. Okay. There are all kinds of flesh all kinds of flesh. There are many, many different types of animals. Now, four categories, maybe. There may be more. I don't know. You've got insects, and do insects have flesh or they, you know, whatever. But he's making a general statement here. He's not making an all-encompassing statement, and he does the same with stars later, okay? So it, it, you got to be careful with the commentaries you read because people will just 
decide something and they'll say it in their writing, it doesn't mean it's correct. As I said, you'll have one scholar say this. I do this every Monday. I read how many scholars every single Monday, every word that they write on a particular verse before I make my commentary for a sermon. I do it every Monday. And I often, Albert Barnes may be my favorite scholar of all time. Charles Ellicott is wonderful. He, I think he flipped out in the New Testament a little bit, but he's, he's very good, okay? And you've got these guys that are very, very sound theologians. You've got Adam Clark and you've got, you know, just a, a list of them, okay? And they will come to exactly the opposite conclusion. They speak fluent Hebrew and Greek, okay? That's what was required of them back then in the 18 and 1700s is they had to know these languages fluently, okay? So when somebody today says, well, that guy knows what he's talking about because he speaks Greek, it doesn't mean he knows what he's talking about because these men disagreed completely, 100%, and they spoke Hebrew and Greek, and they understood the biblical Greek, not just modern Greek and modern Hebrew. As Sergio will tell you, he's over there right now, okay? He will tell you that Biblical Hebrew is much different than modern Hebrew. The people that are speak Hebrew in Israel today do not understand the nuances of the biblical Hebrew. Will Groban understands the Hebrew of the Bible far better than Israel than Sergio over in Israel does. And yet he doesn't speak the language at all, but he understands the mechanics of the language. So don't be fooled by somebody just because he speaks Greek or Hebrew or he's gone to school for it. That doesn't mean that he's a sound theologian. It just simply means that he knows the language. Okay, I know English. It doesn't mean I know everything about the English language, and I certainly don't, uh, you know, how to run a wastewater plant any better than I did 15 years ago when I, or 10 years ago when I left the wastewater business, right? You have to be trained in a discipline and you have to keep yourself in it. Things change, but the Bible will not, okay? Anyway, I'm trying to make the point here is that you just need to be careful about these things. Read, listen, assimilate, but take for granted until you have come to your final determination on things. As the Bible says, and this is a paraphrase because I'm not going to be able to quote it properly, but one person presents his case and it sounds like the right deal. And then the next comes forward and it's completely different. He says, oh, well, he's right. Okay, that's a paraphrase. That's not even close to what, it, but it's the intent of it. You get a lawyer that presents his case and you sit there, if you've ever been in a trial, and you say, oh. That guy is as guilty as he can be. And then the defense guy comes up and you say, I can't believe it. That guy is innocent. I was going to convict a guy. And he's, you have to pay attention because one of them is leading you down the wrong path for whatever reason. Okay, 1539, you read that. Um, Paul is still answering the question found back in verse 35. How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? After those questions, he used the seed as an example we could grasp. Put a seed in the ground and out comes a plant and yet it is the same life so why should it be considered impossible for the resurrection body to be substantially different than the earthly body while being the same person to highlight this further he notes all flesh is not the same flesh the word flesh here denotes the body as much as the material with which the body is made you'll see this in the hebrew as well you've got different words that indicate flesh in the hebrew and in the Greek in the New Testament, you have different words which will speak of the flesh, okay? And then one word can have 10 different meanings based on the intent. You can say, don't walk in the flesh. It doesn't mean the same thing as I have flesh, okay? It may be the same premise, but he's making a moral application rather than a physical application. So you got to be careful when you're looking at these words. Anyway, 
It denotes the body as much as the material with which the body is made. Each animated being has a body unique and perfectly suited for the environment in which it lives. Thus, he notes that there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. The body of man is given to man based on his capabilities. He was given dominion over the earth, and in order to fulfill that, he was given hands to grasp, legs to run, a mind to think, and so on. But he was also given the ability to swim in the ocean. With the development of technology, he can swim under the waters, even for extended periods of time. I'm watching The Outer Limits again. Anybody remember that from when we were, I was a little kid when it came out, but the voice comes on at the beginning. It's got this fuzzy picture and it says, uh, do not attempt to adjust your television set, right? And it goes through this thing telling everything's okay. We're controlling the transmission. Well, last night, this guy is in the South America. He's a business guy and he's diving off of his big expensive boat that he keeps down there. And when he's diving, there's this fish looking thing. Okay, see, he was down there for a long time. Why? Because he had a tank on his back, all right? Scuba, even back in, the, it was like the early 60s that that came out, maybe the mid 60s, but had to be the early 60s. Anyway, um, and so he's down there for an extended period of time because God has given us the wisdom to think things through and to be able to do that. We can go down to great depths and these things that can, they've gotten down to the very bottom of the Marianas Trench now wow. inside of these ships, okay? It's Steel that's so thick that it couldn't collapse under twice the weight of the ocean, whatever. But he's given us that wisdom. And because of the technological developments, man can also fly. Thus, man has a body which is designed by God to fulfill the commission he was given. The Thinking of that, I was on Facebook, yes, I was on Facebook just before uh, we opened today. And there's Ray Willett in Papua New Guinea. All right. He's posting there with some people that he is now you know, working with. And he said, this guy for the first time called me his brother today. Now, this is a guy that was just a young kid when I first met him. And he was, knew that he was going to be a missionary. And yet he was scared. He was scared. I don't know if I can do that. And then what happens is he marries Jess and they talk about it. And they, they know they've got to do this. And then they get a kid and they get another kid and another kid. But they know they have to go. And they've given up everything in this life to go to Papua New Guinea to share the gospel with people that have never heard it before. They have to write a language for whatever tribe that they go into that doesn't speak English or any of the other languages that have already been put into written form. And they've got to do this and they've got to get the word translated and they've got to get the people educated in what the gospel is. And they've given away their lives for that, but that wouldn't have been possible at the rate that they have done it here today if they couldn't fly. They've flown how many times up to Missouri? They've driven by car to Missouri, right? This is possible because God has given us the wisdom to do these things. Up until just a short time ago, a person would get onto a wooden boat and he'd sail across the Atlantic Ocean to America and he'd get off of his wooden boat and he'd get into a, a carriage and a horse would draw him to wherever he was going. That is exactly what happened over 2,000 years ago when Paul got onto a boat sailed on a wooden boat across the sea. He got off where he was going and he would either walk or get on a horse-drawn carriage and he'd be taken to where he is. And within just a couple of years, we have been able to expand on that to where we don't need a wooden boat anymore. We don't need a steel boat anymore. We've got aluminum aircraft that weigh 250,000 pounds without people on them. They can fly all the way across the world. And now we can get the gospel out that quickly and we can get people up to get trained that quickly. We can even get trained online. So God has given us these types of wisdom. 
okay? The animals all have their own bodies, each suited for the purposes God intended. Squirrels eat nuts, but guess what? They also store them. Sometimes those nuts are forgotten. They're covered over by mud from a flood, or maybe even the squirrel dies, leaving the nut uneaten. When this happens, the nut sprouts into a tree. And so squirrels serve a purpose in this way, helping to sow new forests or continue forests that exist. Bats do the same thing. You want to know the great reforester of South America? It's the fruit bat. They will reforest an entire area that has been completely decimated in just a couple of years because that's what fruit bats do, okay? This is just one example in an almost infinite variety of things that various animals do with the bodies that they have been given. And one of the cool things about this is that ducks were created by God, okay? And I, I think I've given this example before. I may not have in this class, but every year I see the ducks behind them all when I'm working every day. Okay, I'm taking care of them all and I'm cleaning it and I get this little family of ducks. They come by once a year and here comes mom and she's got eight ducks behind her. And the next day mom shows up and she's got six ducks behind her. And then a week later, mom's got five ducks behind her and then there's four ducks behind her. Somebody is eating those ducks because that's what God has ordained, that everything lives off of something else. But guess what? We still have ducks 6,000 years later, because God has ordained that ducks make enough ducks so that there will be a survival of the species while they're still feeding other animals. God is infinitely wise that we can have ducks thousands of years later. We got men that have guns that have shot ducks for hundreds of years, and we still have ducks. Paul notes also that there is another of fish. If flesh were flesh without variety, then we would think it impossible that a being could live underwater. We would have no concept of something that could accomplish this feat. But there are fish. Because there are, we can see that life can live and thrive where we cannot. So why should we think it impossible that we will someday be given bodies that are substantially different than the ones we now have, ones which are able to live and act in a way that we cannot even yet comprehend? Paul finishes the verse with another of birds. Will we be able to fly in our resurrected bodies? I don't know, but I've had dreams where I've flown, and I've had dreams where I've actually lived underwater too. So, I mean, if I can dream it, God can, he can make it happen. Anyway, birds can fly even though we can't. They have another type of flesh than we have. They have been designed to do what birds do. Like the squirrel, many birds provide transporting services for seeds and nuts. And as they do, new life springs up. Along with this, they live their lives doing all those things that birds do, working harmoniously within the realm for which they were designed. If you've ever heard the Chuck Wills Widow at night, because they are here in Sarasota, it's a wonderful sound. And it, it's not just that they're out doing bird stuff and they're attracting other birds. They're also giving us something that gives us memories. It gives us happy thoughts because every time I think of the Chuck Wills widow, I think of growing up in Florida out on Siesta Key where there were what? A couple people out there. That was wonderful. Now you never hear the Chuck Wills widow anymore because they've developed Florida. They have a, a fragile environment. And so once in a while, when the wind is coming from the east across the bay, there's a section, you know, where right, right down here where there's no development. Okay. And they have the pine trees that are necessary for the Chuck Wills Widow, and they are in there. When the wind is from the east, I can hear them on the dock. But other than that, I don't hear the Chuck Wills Widow anymore. When we were young, we had Florida Panthers by the church up at the north end of the key. We had um, 
We still have a couple bobcats out there. We had to wetter those, uh, the bob white quails. We haven't seen a bob white quail on Siesta Key probably since I was 10, maybe even younger than that. This is what happens. But God has made all of these things for our happiness and our joy, as well as for, you know, their own thing. They're doing their own thing. They're getting trees to grow and they're doing all of this and that. But as... What's it? Bob White. Oh, can you? The Bo Bob White Quail still at your place? Yeah, well, the park's right there. Oh, the park. That's right. I haven't seen, I'm not kidding. I haven't seen a Bob White Quail in as long as I can remember. But I remember seeing mom and the little ones falling mm -hmm. after them years ago. Years ago. We also had the pygmy rattlers out there, which we don't have anymore. And thank goodness for that. But there's good and there's bad with everything. But now what we have Somebody is a lot of... Asking, I don't know whether one of my boys or not is, how does these new lakes get fish in them? Birds. Well, birds will do that. That's right. Yeah. Or somebody may see them, but that's true. A bird will drop a, a, a fish in there and well, they drop the seeds. The seeds are, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, and it happens and yeah. things get reseeded. That's exactly right. If you want to know how rattlesnakes get onto the key, because there were rattlesnakes when I was growing up out there, yeah, they swim right across. I was out in the kayak with my friends that were visiting and there was a rattlesnake swimming right across the bay. It was a big one. I got my thing and picked them up and we got a photo of them. But yeah, with the, the, uh, the oar, not with my hand. I gave that up when I left Malaysia, okay? When it put out my right eye, that cobra, I've never picked up a snake since then, okay? But yes, that was, uh, you know, I didn't know that it was a spitting cobra, so at least I can be forgiven of that. I knew it was a cobra. I didn't want to kill it in front of my kids, so I grabbed it behind its neck, no problem. I was going to throw it in the woods, and it put out my right eye. That's my fault. I'm not doing that anymore. But you still have your right uh, yes, but it put it out. It was literally eaten right off. Everything was eaten off, and I spent a week in the hospital or about a week in the hospital because of it. But yeah, and you know, it hurts. I'm going to tell you, when you get snake poison in your eye, it's like acid. It just eats everything off. It was, it, but came out okay. I could still see when I left the military. So whatever. Anyway, um, life application. Uh, hang on. Um, uh, oh, no, I'm going to read one more paragraph here. A final thought concerning animal life and the resurrection body would be to consider the butterfly. It transforms into its beautiful state from a mere caterpillar. If this is possible within the natural creation, why should we assume that it is impossible for the resurrection body to be wholly different than what we now know while still being the same life force that we always have been? Memories and all. Life application, if we have nifty bodies that can do really amazing stuff now, imagine what God has prepared for us in our resurrected bodies. Don't be afraid of death. It is a temporary thing, and it is a necessary stop on the way to some amazing glory, okay? Now, hopefully, the Lord will come for us at the rapture, and we won't have to die, okay? But that's hopeful. That is, you know, any one of us could walk out today and get run over. That's the way that life is, all right? If you ever want to see sudden death, and I know it's kind of perverse to do this, but you just go on YouTube and say people dying suddenly. And there are a million videos that you can watch. People flying out of car windows because they didn't, they got in an accident, the car starts rolling and out they go. He didn't know he was going to be dead a second earlier. We don't know. And that's why we need to be prepared for it at all times. Just There's a million different ways to die. Okay, there's one good way to go, and that's the rapture. But I'm not counting on it. I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing, and the Lord's going to come when he's going to come. But I would like it to happen. Don't get me wrong. I'm not in any way trying to say it. Oh, come right now, Lord. Take us home. Um, You're going to discover Moses and Elijah, right? Moses and Elijah. I don't know. I don't know what you're referring to, so. No, they recognize 
Oh, yes. Now, I've heard that. I have heard that. We know that this is Moses and Elijah, and so we're all going to know each other in heaven. I don't follow that precept. I, I, I don't think that we're going to be omniscient in any way, shape, or form. I think it was pretty apparent when Moses and Elijah showed up that they knew who they were for whatever reason. Okay. And maybe they had to be introduced and it's just not in the narrative. I don't know. People have said that. I have heard that before. I've heard it in quite a few sermons, but I don't think that we are, you know, and I better not say that. <laughs> anyway, it may be true. We may all know everybody as soon as we meet them. Oh, you're John that was, uh, you know, in the, the yeah, whatever. <laughs> that may be true, but I, I am not going to make that leap because that's almost taking us to a point of not omniscience, but it's taking us to a point of knowledge that I think we still will have to grow through knowledge. I'll be and, happy with name tags. Name tags are fine. Uh, Mahasharlal Hashbaz. You have to three, have three of them for that guy. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, okay, 1540. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. Another. The only difference with this one says celestial and yeah. terrestrial. But yeah, it says basically the same. Okay, um, if this verse isn't read as a part of the whole paragraph, and one immediately goes to the next verse, which is verse 41, it may leave the misperception that verse 41 is explaining verse 40, that the celestial bodies are the sun, moon, and stars mentioned there. This, however, would not be properly explaining Paul's use of wording. Instead, it would provide a false antithesis to <coughs> bodies terrestrial. Okay, that's the pulpit commentary that said that. I was quoting them. Okay, in other words, Paul has three separate groupings from verse 39 to 41. Verse 39, flesh, men, animals, fish, birds. Verse 40, bodies, celestial bodies, terrestrial bodies. And then verse 41, glory, sun, moon, stars, and star from star. The word for celestial here is eporanios. It signifies that which is heavenly. It is used 19 times in the New Testament, and it is consistently speaking of a heavenly matter, meaning a spiritual one. One of those 19 examples will help clarify what this means. I'm going to take you to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. It may be true, Burke. I, I think about that every time I, I come across that. I don't know if that's correct. I just don't want to make that, that dogmatic interpretation of it, but it may be true, and I never dismiss it. I just... I, I, I don't want to say, yes, we're going to know everybody immediately. Well, I'm just talking about the bodies. The oh, that's true. They, they, and I would agree with that. They knew that I would agree with that premise right there, 100%. Okay, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of this great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In this, the word heavenly is speaking of the spiritual realm of heaven, not the cosmos, where the sun, moon, and stars are. We are currently seated with Christ in God's redemptive plans, even though we have not actually arrived there yet. Once again, another verse for eternal salvation. In God's mind, it is a done deal. It is done, okay? This is the type of heaven that the word signifies. Understanding this, we can properly perceive what Paul is writing about here. It is not specifically angels, but heavenly beings. 
there are, these are being contrasted to earthly or terrestrial beings. We are earthly right now. Every one of us is an earthly being. We're not a heavenly being. The same word, Epirinius, will be used three times in verses 48 and 49 when speaking of our resurrection bodies, which will be like the resurrected body of, guess what, anybody? That's right, just like Christ. Therefore, Paul is showing us a taste of that now by placing this comparison between two examples of natural types of bodies, those in verse 39 and then those in verse 41. As noted, this is not specifically speaking of angels, but it is a comparison to such heavenly beings. This is stated by Jesus concerning those of the resurrection in Matthew 22, 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. And not, yes, to further substantiate this, and make sure I put that down properly. Okay, there we go. Um, to further substantiate this, we can see a similar analogy of the resurrected bodies to stars. This is found in Daniel chapter 12. So let me take you there really quickly. And he says there, oh, hang on, Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. He says, I'll just start with verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands, watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as was never since there was a nation even to that time. Has that ever happened in human history? No, it's coming, future, okay? And at that time, your people, who is Daniel's people? The Jews, Israel, that's right. Your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some do everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine, here it is, like the brightness of the firmament firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever and so we can see in this verse paul is using both the natural types of bodies those of verses 39 and verse 41 as examples to help us understand the difference between the heavenly and the earthly bodies of verse 40. life application whatever our coming heavenly bodies will be like they will be amazing they will be so vastly superior to what we are clothed in now that we should rejoice at the thought of heading off to be with Jesus. Let us not fear the temporary hold of physical death. It has no mastery over us. And I'm speaking to believers. Anybody that's listening on live stream right now or watches on YouTube later and you have not received Jesus as your Savior, this doesn't apply to you. What you have is coming, have coming is corruption eternal corruption okay i would ask that you would call on jesus today because what he promises is glorious and it's guaranteed i mean it's one of those things that christ didn't just come and come out of the grave just to show us that he can do it and how bad we all are he came to save us as that indian guy that spoke at the church a couple weeks ago said the guy said well i follow krishna well i don't i don't want to follow krishna because he came to kill sinners and this guy said, well, guess what? That's the big difference is that Christ came to save sinners. World of difference there. 1541. The sun is one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. In the previous verse, Paul noted that there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. This verse now is not explaining that, but rather it is confirming the truth in another way. 
Just as there are different types of flesh on the earth, there are different types of glory in the sky above us. When we look up, we don't just see one object in the sky. Rather, we see different objects at different times, and they have a variety of purposes. First, there is one glory of the sun. The sun rules the daytime. It provides heat to the world, and it lights the day. God purposed this. It is a certain distance from the earth so that the right amount of heat and light arrive for life to continue. And if you've noticed that the moon is at exactly the right spot within the distance from the earth to the sun so that we have exact eclipses. And we can tell things about the universe simply by watching an eclipse and the way that the light goes around it in a certain way. And they've been able to prove Einstein's theories simply by going to someplace up in the Arctic when there's a... Uh, a uh, aurora, uh, aurora, yeah, uh, no, not aurora, an eclipse, and they can look through the atmosphere and they can say, look, Einstein was right. He thought this and now we've confirmed it. And they had to do it many years later, but they finally did it. And now we know these things. But that wouldn't have happened if the moon was, say, a thousand miles closer to the earth or 10,000 miles further away or whatever. But God has done this so that we can know everything is balanced and properly maintained. Okay. So, um, we don't just see, yes, there's one glory of the sun. I said that. There's also another glory of the moon. When the sun is hidden from our sight, the moon is often there reflecting the light of the sun. It appears closer or farther away at various times, and it can go from a tiny sliver to a full circle as it moves. It serves God's purposes in a variety of ways for the benefit of his creatures on earth, especially when you're in love with a girl and you're young and you want to go out and sit by the moon. Boy, it serves a great purpose there, doesn't it? Okay, and Paul notes that there is even another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. Not only do the stars differ in the glory they radiate on earth in comparison to the sun and the moon, but they also do so in comparison to one another. They are set in the heavens and often appear as groupings, which we call constellations. Yes, the North Star remains fixed in one spot, some stars appear bluish, others have a silvery or reddish tone. Every one of them is there for a purpose, and not one is unknown to God. That's recorded in Psalm 147, where it says this, Psalm 147, verse 4. It says, he counts the number of the stars, he calls them all by name. That's right. And as Burke said to me one time, I've always remembered that since then, is that uh, it's almost an afterthought. You think of the stars out there, the multitude of stars. When, uh, what's his name, Hubble looked out there and realized that that's not a star. That's another galaxy and another and another and another. And there's billions of galaxies and every one of them has billions of stars. All of that is summed up in one part of one sentence in the creation account. And God made the stars also. The attention of God is on this planet and on the people of this world. That's where his attention is. Everything else is done for the benefit of that. There are constellations. How do we know? Because the Bible speaks of the constellations. Orion, the bear, the whatever. He names the constellations and therefore he put them up there for a reason. Job, what did I say? Oh, you're saying, yeah, my mom is over there saying, Job, Job, Job. Yes, that's right. The constellations, and there would not be the same constellations if you were on another planet because you'd have a different reference point. So when God speaks of the constellations, he's speaking about it from the reference point of planet Earth. 
Okay, there's a reason why he did these things. Genesis 1, 14 through 19 notes that each and all of the heavenly orbs have a purpose according to the wisdom of God. I'll take you there. Genesis chapter 1, where he says, hang on. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. God put those things up there for us to know that certain things were about to happen or that have happened and we can know that that was what he was speaking about. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So first he says they're for signs and for seasons. We're to know the structure of the times of the planting and reaping and harvesting but even before that he says they are oat their signs which are for our understanding of what god is doing in redemptive history okay he goes on and he says then god made two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night he made the stars there it is also everything else is just in one little part of a sentence oh i just put it all together that quickly i just spoke it into existence God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. That is astonishing. That's an astonishing thing if you think about it. When Hubble looked out there and saw all of that, he must have been utterly amazed. He couldn't grasp it. Some are going away from us super fast, and he says that's the red shift, and some are coming towards us real fast, and that's the blue shift, or vice versa, whatever. But he knew what was going on out there, and he couldn't believe it. And all it is is just God saying, and the stars also. Verse 18, and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So evening and the morning were the fourth day. Everything that we see out there when we lift our eyes to the heavens, all of it, he did on the fourth day. That is rather astonishing. Life application. Yeah, we got time. If God put such minute care into the structure of the heavenly bodies, which were placed there as signs and seasons for man, then how much more can we be certain that God cares for man? And if in our fallen state he attends to us, then how much more attention can we hope for when we receive our resurrected bodies? Whatever he has planned for our eternal abode, we can trust that it will be magnificent. Absolutely. And if you think about what Harvard wrote, it was a couple years ago now, they came out and they said that they did the study on the human brain and they have said that we without any doubt at all, proclaim that the human brain is the most magnificent and complicated structure in the universe. So much so, they said, that it is more complicated than the structure of the universe itself. And how do we treat it? We treat it as if it doesn't even exist. We have things come into our minds and we watch TV that doesn't matter at all. It just goes in and it comes out and we don't take the time to study God's word, which is given to us as a pattern for our lives. And we don't even use our minds in the way that God intended for us. And yet Harvard says that it is the most complicated structure in the universe, more so than the universe itself. And here we sit, not using it. How do you evolve into that? How do you evolve into that? Yeah, you know what they, they say, and some people dispute it, but they do say that uh, the human mind actually is capable of much more than it actually is used for, okay? Well, that how can you evolve something that has more potential, more potential than what you need for it? That completely destroys the idea of evolution. 
it's impossible that you would develop another arm that you don't need yet, that you'll need in 15 billion years of evolution or something. It's not going to happen. The model of evolution says that you evolve to meet a need. If your mind is beyond whatever it is needed for, then it did not evolve. It was intended for a different purpose, and it was created by God. And we're going to find out how marvelous that will be someday. 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown is perishable and raised imperishable. Okay, the only difference there is corruption in corruption. Paul now begins to respond to the question in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 with specific details. These are based on the analogies he provided in verses 36 through 41, which we have done today. This particular verse is responding to verses 36 through 38. The seed went into the ground in corruption. It sprang into a new and exciting form. And yet it was the same life which went into the ground. The analogy has been given. It is appropriate and Paul confirms it with the words, so also is the resurrection of the dead. What happens with the seed will also be the case with those who die. This then is speaking of the form, the form of the resurrection, not the manner. Their body is sown in corruption. When a believer is planted in the ground, they decompose and return to the form of the basic elements from which they were taken, eventually becoming nothing but dust once again. As Spoken by the Lord at the very beginning, so it is with man to this day. But this is not the end of the story. Like the seed, the body of the believer will change, and it will be raised in incorruption. This change will take place, and it results. its results will be explained in greater detail in verses 15, I'm sorry, 51 through 54, and I'm so excited about getting there. It's just such a marvelous set of verses. The body we now have is corruptible. The body we will be given is incorruptible. The body we now have has have now is prone to weakness. It's prone to sickness, to fractures, to infection. We talked about how many of them just at the beginning of the class today and so on. The body we will receive will not have such characteristics of corruption. Instead, like the body of the plant, which is completely different than the seed, the body of the believer will be completely different from what we now experience. Life application again, unless we have observed a particular type of seed being planted and growing into a plant, like a durian or a jackfruit, we could never guess what that plant would actually look like and what its characteristics would be. If anybody said, I'm going to take this seed that's about this big and it's light brown, and I'm gonna plant it in the ground and out is going to come something that smells so wonderful and tastes so marvelous as the durian. You would never in your life believe it. You would not. You would, you, I'm telling you, you guys don't know what you're missing. You have no idea what you're missing when I tell you, go down, take the adventure, go down to 12th Street. I know it's not nearly as good as when you're in Malaysia or Thailand or wherever, okay, where it grows naturally. And you can grow it in Florida as well. I've had uh, some friends that have durian here in Florida, but I will tell you that you can go down to 12th Street and you go into the Chinese place. It's right at the corner, right behind the um, IHOP on 12th Street. And you can go to the very back of the store and there they have frozen durian. And you take it home, you let it sit in your refrigerator for three days. Is that enough? Three days. And then you take that baby and open it up and you will never have anything so wonderfully delightful in your life. It is marvelous. And that little seed. Oh yeah, you could empty a bus. You could empty a lot more than that. I'm telling you, it does smell very bad. But once you get into that baby, there's nothing like a durian. 
The same is true with our resurrection bodies. We cannot fully imagine what lies ahead, but we can know that it has been planned by the creator of all things. Because all things are possible to God, we can be certain that what lies ahead for us will be marvelous. Now, when I say all things are possible to God, that's quoting what is said in scripture, but that does not mean that God can make a one into a two. He can't make an orange a blue, okay? We're talking about logical things. All things are possible to God. Logical things, moral things, etc. But God cannot violate his own nature. And he, he cannot make, make something. Bread. What's that? Did he make rock bread? Rot bread? Rock. Rock. Oh, he can make a rock bread. Absolutely he can. 100%. He can do all things. He, there, he what? He can make a water. He can make. Oh, he can make a rock Pour forth water as well. Absolutely right. God can do anything. He cannot violate his own nature. That's one thing that we need to be uh, aware of, though. Because all things are possible to God, we can be certain that what lies ahead will be marvelous. If you're struggling with some human weakness today, like the people we mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, uh, uh, class today, just remember that it is but a temporary and light affliction compared to the glory that awaits. Do we have time for one more? 1543. Uh, yeah, we've got time for another. Go ahead. Okay. 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Word for word there. Exactly the same. Paul is speaking of the form of the resurrection, responding to the question which had been asked, with what body do they come? Like the previous verse, he gives contrasting thoughts when our current body dies, he says, it is sown in dishonor. Why do we bury bodies? The answer durian. is, yeah, well, yeah, no, definitely not durian. The answer is because they quickly begin to degrade and they become offensive to the senses. And so we secret them away because of the shame, as Paul says, the dishonor which occurs in them. The state of decay is a direct result of something else which is shameful, and that is sin. That's why we secret bodies away. That's right there in John chapter anybody? 11, thank you. John chapter 11. It's been four days, don't open it. There's gonna be a bad smell. Don't you believe that if my words, that you'll see the glory of God? I know that's a misquote, but there he says it right there in John chapter 11. He understood that that is not the end for those that are in the power of Christ. Okay, when Adam sinned against the Lord, he hid himself and covered himself with fig leaves. There was dishonor in what occurred. When the man sinned, he died spiritually. Further, as a result of this spiritually dead condition, the Lord told him that he would die physically. He would return to the dust from which he came. After this, the Lord clothed him with a tunic of skin, thus covering him. All of this indicates that shame and dishonor is associated with this life in which we live. The stain continues in all men, because all are in Adam and thus all have sinned. The result of this, unfortunately, is death. And the result of death is being sown in dishonor. However, for those in Christ, the seed that is planted will be raised in glory. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Sin is no longer imputed to us because we have moved from Adam to Christ. Therefore, when this body of sin is taken away, what comes from it will be glorious. The Greek word for glory, does anybody know what the Greek word for glory, glory is? Doxa. 
okay? We, we would say a doxology, it's doxa, okay? It carries the meaning of honor, renown, glory, and especially divine quality, the unspoken manifestation of God, splendor. The, yes, the fallen Im image of Adam will be replaced with the glorious image of Christ. In addition to this, Paul notes that it is sown in weakness. Our human lives are exceedingly frail. Our bodies are susceptible to all kinds of limitations and potentially catastrophic occurrences. We cut easily, bones break, sickness is always around the corner from infections, pollens, viruses, and so on. I was taking out some of my bromeliads yesterday and I got a thorn in my finger. Okay, ouch, so what? I went to bed, I woke up this morning and I pushed on my finger and out come this white pus. It had already gotten infected overnight. The body's trying to get rid of it. It's trying to get it out of there. The earthly body that we exist in is temporary and it degrades in just a few decades. At the end of our days, it is sown in this same weak condition and it degrades even more swiftly until nothing is left but dust once again. However, for those in Christ, the seed which is planted is raised in power. As Paul is giving contrasts, the word for power is to be taken as the opposite of weakness. It is the Greek word dunamis. Anybody? Dynamite. Dynamite. It can carry a host of meanings, including physical strength, endurance, and the like. The weakness spoke of frailty and eventually death. The power then is speaking of robustness, hardiness, and life. We will not be susceptible to the same limitations and ultimate termination that we now face. I can't wait. Instead, a whole new order of existence will be realized. And just in time, we're just in time. If I go over that, I think I've told you, maybe I haven't. If I go over the hour and a half, it gives Mike a lot of extra work because he puts them on the podcast. and He's got to do something entirely different. So we got to keep it down to the, exactly the minute there. But anyway, at this time, we can only imagine the state of our future body in relation to what our current body is like. We can make logical assumptions of what lies ahead, but we cannot know exactly what it will be like. However, we can be certain that our bodies will be fitting for being in the presence of the glory of God, and they will be sufficient to last us for all eternity in that wondrous place. You know, if you are down at the end of this Bible class today, then there's something wrong with you because I got to tell you, I know there are some times where we go into topics and subjects that'll bring you down, but talking about the resurrection and what God has promised for us in Christ, I just, man, I can't wait. I can't wait. This is a sure hope. This isn't just a dubious hope. This isn't just, oh, I hope. This is, I know, and this is my hope that Christ has done this for us. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the wonderful chance to look into this chapter of 1 Corinthians, wow, it'd be good to get to 1 Thessalonians 4 and tie it in with that someday too. But for now, it's just so wonderful to hear about the resurrection and what's coming for your people. Thank you that Christ has done this and we would pray that many people would be willing to get out there and pass the word on about what Jesus did so that they can have the same sure hope that we have. And Lord, once again, we raise up all the people that we mentioned at the beginning of the service today and anybody else that is privately struggling with their own troubles and trials and sicknesses or sadnesses or financial troubles or whatever is going on in their life that will keep them from from a content relationship with you, that they would be able to put those things aside and just praise you for who you are despite them. Thank you for the hope we possess and thank you for the glory which is revealed in our Lord Jesus. Thank you. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.
Okay, let me back this up. Say goodbye to the folks online.